When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. G'day, folks, and welcome to another episode of Encounters Down Under. Joining us on the show is someone not everyone will know unless you are serious when it comes to the field of UFOs. The man I speak of is none other than Paul Dean, who is a renowned Australian UFO researcher that has been attacking not only Australia, but even the American government and military for the past 20 odd years, trying to obtain information they have on the UFO phenomena. So Paul joins us on the show to tell us about his life as a researcher and explain some of the difficulties he's had, as well as the knowledge he's obtained over the years. So please give a warm welcome, Mr. Paul Dean. All yours, Paul. Welcome to the show. Okay, thanks heaps for that. Um, well, um, yeah, I, I look, look. some people know my work pretty well, and, and a lot of people don't at all. Um, one reason might be because what, what I do is essentially a lot of it is very boring. A lot of it's very, very dry. Um, technical, historical, um, there's nothing particularly conspiratorial or, um, or someone once even used the, someone once used the word sexy in, 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 in what I, what I do as far as the, the history of the UFO matter, um, entails. I do, I do some really, really, uh, work at the coalface, you know, um, analysing weather data and, 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 and studying how pilots talk to each other over radio systems when they're describing something that they're seeing in the sky or, or you know, we're trying to work out who signed something on an on a almost illegible document from, you know, a government archive from the 50s. Yeah, that's, okay. just, that's a lot of the sort of work I do. Yeah, yeah wow. So there'll be a lot to it then, so a lot of back and forth sort of you know, trying to yeah. get the information, get choosing the right words and such, maybe kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Doing, I mean, everything. When you go to a state library or a national library or a university library, and and you start looking for, you start looking for old books that that haven't been assessed or studied by UFO researchers or, or even just general aerospace physicists or or meteorologists or historians like when you're looking for old books or booklets or, or magazines that that haven't been assessed or looked at from you know the 40s or when you're looking for particular um, thesis dissertations on on radar systems or meteorological phenomena or whatever you yeah you have to be very very specific and it's the same thing dealing with the government when you're dealing directly with ministers, or the chief of air, who's the head of our air force, or the chief of navy, who's the head of our naval command, or or dealing with say the lawyers at the at the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, you have to have done your research first. You have to know their terminology, not yours, theirs. You yeah. can't be flinging the word UFO around. You certainly can't be flinging the word flying saucer around. Um, you can't be uh, flinging anything to do with aliens around. Whatever you've got to be using their language, you know, accident, incident, notification. 
is a better term for UFO sighting. If yeah, you know wow. what I mean. Okay. You know, within within Air Services Australia, that's the that's the organisation that run our airports, that uh, license airports, that run our navigational and radar systems. With with them, you need you can't just you know say to them, look, I want to, I want copies of every UFO you, you've had in the last five years, every UFO report you've had in the last five years from pilots over Australia. They want to know. Mm, okay. So, um, using our what 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 system do you think? Um, pilots use with Air Services Australia with us, and 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 you've got to say, well, I know that they report on your electronic electronically submitted event report system. They report words like unknown traffic or unknown object, you know, like, and then they say, ah, now we know what you're talking about. Yeah, we'll go and fetch the information. Wait two months. So. Yep. That's, this is the sort of work I do, and it, and it, it, it can be very, very dry. Uh, you need a lot of patience. Um, yeah. You need to be dealing with a lot of bureaucracy, uh, a lot of legal jargon, um, and some of it's there's some very significant barriers in what I do. Yeah, wow. That are thrown up. Yeah. So, what actually got you started into doing this sort of stuff? Like, did you have an experience for yourself, or did you just no. like find it interesting and go, "I'll want to find out more about this"? No, what I did. No, I've never seen a damn thing. Never seen a damn. Oh, thing. that's unfortunate. Yeah, no. Um, I sort of wonder now if it's even worth it. It's like it's 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 like I've got my I've got my head stuck in the bookwork anyway, not looking up, and it's just funny. But the two things that got me started. Yep. Okay, so um, I'm in Melbourne, and um, one of the, one of really one of the world, or certainly up until recently, we'll say one of the world's most famous UFO cases was an infamous event called the the, the Frederick Valentik affair. And it happened okay. um, in October uh, 1978, tad before I was born. Yep. And what actually happened was a pilot, by the, a 21-year-old pilot by the name of Frederick Valentik took off from, from a suburban airport in Melbourne. He flew south. Um, his, 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 um, his plan, or his flight plan, was to simply fly south at sunset, pick up crayfish on King Island, which is near Tasmania, and fly back before night's end. And, and just a routine night flight, single engine or single propeller, single engine Cessna uh, with him as the single pilot on board, no other crew, no, no one else. And what actually happened was um, he never made it. He simply never made it to his destination. But what was interesting was this. The final 13 minutes of his, of his journey, he was in constant radio communication with Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne. And his... His discussion with them, it'll make your hair... For those who don't know what I'm talking about, it'll make your hair stand on end. For yep. those who do know what I'm talking about, they'll know what I'm talking about. Um, now, that, that incident, basically, he described an object or objects, probably one object, um, encircling, um, harassing his aircraft. He tried to shake it. He went in orbital circles around to try and shake it. Um, he described it as shiny and metallic, blah, blah, blah. Then he vanished. Right, now, this event happened a bit before I was born, but um, uh, it, it, it regularly as I was growing up, it was, you know, featured on a current affair or today tonight or one of those shows or it was in, in magazines or it was occasionally featured in, in newspaper articles, you know, you know, the 10th anniversary of Frederick Valentik's disappearance and it was the 15th anniversary of Frederick yep. Valentik's disappearance and then, you know, new, new so-called new evidence is coming out, whatever, and this would just keep playing out in the media. And, of course, growing up, you'd think, well, what is all this about? Like, and, and my, my mum or my family or friends or whatever would say, oh, it's that pilot that saw a UFO and he, and he vanished. And so, and so that, that's one thing that got me interested. But the other thing that got me interested is that my father 
who was actually in the army. He was in the Australian Army in Victoria, and um, he was in mapping and cartography. But he he was driving between Sydney and Melbourne, and he had his own sighting, unfortunately, by himself. So it's what we call a single witness case. Yep. Happened in the middle of the night, so not great. But it was a very, very provocative sighting. And, and my father's a very technical guy, like a pretty scientific guy. He's certainly not open to flights of fancy. Um, he's not a, He doesn't drink and drive. He's got per- perfect eyesight, all that. And he had a really confounding, perplexing experience that, that, that was fairly close range and, and scared the living daylights out of him. So those two, so we grew up, he, I grew up with him occasionally recounting this story. And those are the two, two things that got me stuck into the books. And, you know, the first thing I realised once I got stuck into the books, I mean, when you're a child going to the library, you're going to find books on unsolved mysteries and you're going to find books on, 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 on you know, strange places and strange happenings and ghosts and whatever else. And it, it, came, it became apparent to me pretty quickly that a lot of this stuff was, a lot of it was, was, was garbage or, or at best it was anecdotal and circumstantial. I mean, werewolves, Atlantis, vampires, uh, you yeah. know, whatever. Folklore sort of stories. Folklore, uh, legend, um, um, mythological stories, strange places that may in fact not be that strange at all, yeah. and you know, you know, you know, conspiracies that have conspiracies that have been easily superseded now, easily long superseded, and but the UFO mystery stood out as being something quite unique because it had one ongoing governmental and military interest, two, it just was not going away. I mean, things like you know, vampires—they've long gone, werewolves, whatever. Yeah, it's kept as a bedtime story, basically. Exactly, but the UFO mystery just keeps piling on and piling on. In in the, there's a level of secrecy, there's a level of document classification, there's a level of government concern. It's 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 worldwide, you know, like 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 the phenomena, whatever it constitutes, does appear to be completely worldwide, and it's very historical. And there's so much material on it. There is so many old newspaper articles and old book extracts you can read from you know from 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 the day books were first printed where people have been you know right back to theological and clergy records town town mayor records just the the amount of cave paintings the amount of historical material not to mention everything that's been printed in 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 government dossiers and, and 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 typewritten letters between scientists and everything else you know from the 40s onwards the amount of material out there to 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 engage with and, and, and read is, is is insurmountable. It's unbelievable how much material. I mean, right now, if you include books on on um on on strange like say like SETI or 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 if you include books on say weather anomalies and so on, we've got we've got three and a half thousand books on UFOs. In, Holy in jeez. Yeah, in, yeah, we do. We get there's three and a half thousand books have been printed on on UFOs, and then there would be another. It would have to be another nine or ten thousand that at least mention UFOs. It might be you know a children's book on, on unsolved mysteries or whatever. And we've we've actually to actually go through this stuff is is completely is com- it, it, you couldn't do it in a whole lifetime. I mean, the the number of magazines that over the years, newsletters and magazines and journals and periodicals that have been devoted just to UFOs alone. Is, is just beyond the pale. You could fill rooms and rooms and rooms of it. It is so much material, it's not funny. No, nothing wow. else, none, none of the other mysteries, maybe with the exception, maybe with the exception of the real big hitting things like, like the assassination of John F. Kennedy, something like that. Yep. Nothing else, no, no other mysteries come even close to the amount of resource material we've actually got. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. It is, yeah. 
So how do you yeah. actually come about to go and sort of look down the path of this sort of thing? Okay, so I found um, I found that uh, I, I studied I studied the, 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 the great scholarly works, the great foundational scholarly works of ufology from the 70s and 80s, all really late 60s, 70s and 80s. So those are books by uh, the astronomer Joseph Allen Hynek, um, the atmospheric physicist uh, James Lee MacDonald, or he didn't publish books, but he, he published monographs and, and papers. Um, the great authors like Amy Michelle and Dick Hall and even the sceptical authors like Phil Clash, you've got to read sceptical stuff too. Yep. Um, I studied the really technical stuff and, and one thing, a few things jumped out at me early on, I realised that the, 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 the very agencies, the very government agencies and government military commands that should be, by rights, should be on the forefront of UFO, whatever UFOs are, and also mean stray missiles, unidentified missiles, unidentified or secret aircraft, whatever, basically anything in the sky, I realised that in America and Australia, and, 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 and to a lesser extent in England, I realised that the very government agencies that were tasked with understanding what was in the skies and in space were the very agencies, unfortunately, that were being overlooked by ufologists. So for, for really since the 70s, the, 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 the vast number of UFO researchers have been focusing on the intelligence community in America, so the CIA. Yep. The FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, to a lesser extent the National Security Agency, NSA, um, they've been focusing on old army records, they've been focusing on uh, like university laboratories, they've been whatever, but the very agencies that they should have been focusing on, like NORAD, which is the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or uh, the United States Air Force Space Command, those two agencies particularly, have barely been touched as far as UFOs go. So basically I realised that the, 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 the best data, the best data, the best information, the best pictorials, the best radar data, the best opinion pieces and classified statements and logs and whatever else, the best material will be held by this small handful in America, this small handful of, of organisations. That UFO researchers have either found it too hard to engage with, uh, or they have have just simply completely missed them. And so I started really studying how Air Force Space Command and Navy Space Command and Army Space Command and and NORAD. I, I started studying how they worked, how they detected things in the space, in space and in the atmosphere, how they logged events in space and atmosphere, how pilots talk to each other when they're flying under the auspices of NORAD. Um, and so on, and 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 I started, I started, uh, yeah, writing about it, and 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 what what few documents, what few declassified documents we do actually have, or have or have had in the past, I brought them back to life, and I brought them into the light, and and we're talking old unit history documents and sighting reports from pilots, and 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 uh, and, and basically almost like indexes and lists of the number of unknown objects that have been picked up at, at individual radar stations around the coast of the United States and stuff like this. This material had either never been seen before or it hadn't been seen for a very long time. So, And I realised that, that while everyone else is whinging about NASA and griping about the CIA and griping about, you know, the president and griping about you know, like, like like secret laboratories and whatever else, I realised that some of the best material is right under people's noses and no one's ever done anything about it. Well, yeah, not wow. for a long time. Anymore. That is incredible. Yeah. 
That is absolutely amazing, like how much detail has been lost and overlooked, like you're saying. Jeez. So like how long do you think that took you to try and like overcome all that sort of information years, to actually get that years. back? I mean Yes, I mean just to even study how how an organization like the North American Aerospace Defense Command actually works. By the way, for those who don't know, uh, NORAD is responsible for America and Canada's military air sovereignty and military uh, aerospace surveillance. So basically NORAD at any one time should and must know everything in the atmosphere above America and Canada uh, above 500 feet. So sure, they're not going to know little tiny planes that are going from one little airport to another, but basically anything higher than that, NORAD have in their uh, have on their screens. It is almost like in the movies. And, and it took me years to figure out where all the NORAD bases are and what you have to do to work at NORAD and how they actually log sightings like like for example when they pick up something on radar that should not be there like it's it's hasn't filed a flight plan it hasn't got any radio transmission coming from it it won't identify itself it's doing loop-de-loops in the sky whatever that's immediately with the radar system it's called an unknown track um and and it's all ut unknown track so i had to learn all this i had to learn you know how many unknown tracks they were picking up every year how many of those unknown tracks were going away from the united states or canada how many were actually over the united states or canada how many turned out to be hijacked aircraft blah 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 i mean this oh, wow. took years and years yeah years and years of reading and 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 space command was even harder i mean one thing we've found out is is that the united states air force's space command has this squadron um that that runs four they're called ground electro optical surveillance system telescopes and what they are they're these massive telescopes there's one in new mexico one in hawaii uh one in spain and one in korea and they 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 look up into well as long as it's as long as it's not cloudy they look up into space and they 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 cut this massive swathe of, of, of they look straight up and they and they look at a big huge portion of the stars above them yeah, and right. and in insanely sensitive mirrors and they've got these they've got these special um electro optical kind of like sensors attached to the cameras so the users like the battle space controller people like the guys with the you know uh, the boffins with the glasses they can actually watch everything going overhead every single satellite every single chunk of satellite you know piece of bolt a, a something down to the size of a baseball every meteorite every little shard of comet ice whatever there's just oh, wow. things constantly zipping past, zipping past at 36,000 k's an hour just over their heads. And every now and again, so every single object is already tagged. So a Cosmos satellite zooms past, it's tagged as, you know, Cosmos 138, yep. blah, blah, blah. You know, a piece of, a piece of some old rocket body from a lunar mission goes past, that's already been tagged. You know, it's, it's, it's number 9864272 US rocket body, whatever. Every now and again, though, just every now and again, something zooms past which no one's ever seen before and yep. that's when they jump it's called immediately called an uncorrelated target and that means it's either one of a few things it's either a piece of meteorite that they've never seen before that's okay that's that's if it's really big like if it's leaving a big huge trail on their screen that's really scary that because that could means it could be heading for earth's surface right yep. and then all their computers do something called a uh, an impact prediction report and they immediately send it to washington and London and whatever else, or it's part of the, the object that zooms overhead will be will be called an NFL um, new foreign launch, which means it's a 
which means it's a it's a new it's a new missile or rocket that's been launched from North Korea or Iran or Russia or whatever. Yeah. But sometimes some uncorrelated targets they appear and then they vanish, right? And they're the ones that we're spooked at because in orbital dynamics, using in Newtonian physics and Kepler's law in space, things just don't vanish in space. You know, yes, occasionally a meteorite will zip past and go very close to Earth and then nick off back into interplanetary space, but um, sometimes maybe there's some things that are a little bit more interesting, like what we would call UFO. Um, and these uncorrelated targets, to get hold of the actual data, is all classified and doesn't matter how old it is. You could ask, you could ask, I could ask, or I have asked Air Force Space Command's 14th Air Force, it's called the Joint Functional Components Center for Space at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. I can ask them for copies of all uncorrelated data or uh, all, 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 all uncorrelated target data for, say, I don't know, 1989. And they will come back and they'll say all uncorrelated target data, no matter what year you specify, it is all classified secret or above. That means secret or top secret. And yep. we're not releasing a single thing. Right, not a okay. single thing. Go somewhere else. So do you think some of this could have been passed off as um, technical glitches with the system, maybe? That absolutely. Could have been and there's, and... Actually, there's actually a term for that. They're called false UCTs. There's okay. actually, what actually happens is with uncorrelated targets in space, there's actually four types. Well, once they've seen it a couple of times or once they've got a really good look at it or once it's appeared, let's say it appears on one of the telescope screens, then it appears on, on another one on the other side of the world or, or once, let's say it appears on, on the telescope screen in Hawaii and then it also crosses over the United States and it trips something called the Space Track Fence, which is an ultra-long-range radar from um, California to Florida. Yep. Um, let's, so let's say, say it's seen on two multiple, like on multiple different systems, right? Yep. Once they once they sort of know what they're looking at, like which direction it's going, how high it is, how how large it is, they actually tag it as one of four things. It's either a critical UCT, that means it's foreign and it's bad and it's nasty and it's probably got cameras on it or it might bomb us. Or two, it's classified as a significant UCT, which means maybe we've got to keep looking at this thing, it could be bad. Then there's an insignificant UCT, which is probably just some little bolt or nut that's come off a satellite. And then there's something called a false UTC, which is, um, no, sorry, yeah, UCT. A false UCT is a system glitch. It's something that, that looks like it was there, but it actually wasn't there. And that okay. could be something even like a piece of ice that's actually melted. By the time I get a second look at it, it's gone forever. Yeah. So, so that's called a false. But yeah, I mean, some of them will be system glitches. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But, 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 but I've seen. I've actually got booklets. The way these telescopes work, I've I've got copies of declassified booklets, or I've even got a copy of an instruction manual on how to run these cameras. And it's like 57 pages just to learn how to use the screens. Oh wow! And it's really yeah, it's 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 incredible. And, and and that's and that's from the eighties. So imagine what they've got now in two thousand. Yeah, that's amazing, especially from the eighties. Jeez. Yeah, 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 I know. Well I've got I found one document the other day that rocked me to the core. There's a huge radar radar base in um, Florida. Everyone knows about it. It's been there since the sixties. It's called the Eglin site or the Eglin facility or the Eglin radar station. And its job is to look over the Caribbean. So it looks up over the Caribbean, like over Cuba and Bahamas, and it's looking for submarine launch ballistic missiles, it's looking for intercontinental ballistic missiles, in, intermediate range ballistic missiles coming from Eastern Bloc or communist countries or countries like that have been problematic in the past, like Grenada or, you know, particularly Cuba. Yep. Anyway, it turns out I've got a 1980, 
what we called so so sorry the, the the radar station is run by a squadron called the or what used to be run by a squadron called the 20th missile warning squadron and i've got a unit history unit history is like a 50 page booklet about what the squadron did for that whole year so you know the number of awards that were given to servicemen you know how much money they went through how much fuel they went through on the base how much electricity they went through you know was there a visiting general did the president drop by you know how much lunches did we eat whatever wow. but in there yeah i know in there in there there's a chapter on it's called capabilities and it simply yeah. says the england space radar system performed exceeding capabilities we were able to detect two test launches from Cuba's landmass, blah, blah, blah. We also saw two Soviet pre-launch events or, or launch events that were that were warned to us, no problem. But anyway, it goes on. Then it says it's got this curious statement. You've got to remember, this is from 1980, right? Yeah. It says, the system is working so well that when we spot things in space, we can judge their size and shape and reflectivity. Oh, wow. Right. So they can actually, with a radar, so with the radar system, they can actually discern how radar reflective it is, so how, you know, how it reflects radio waves, so that would tell you if it's made of plastic, metal, whatever. Then it says we can, we can discern its shape and we can discern its size, like, like how physically big it is, and then if it's a rectangle or a cone or a circle or a sphere. So if, if they've spotted something like a missile warhead, which of course is shaped like a cone, yeah. right, they can actually discern that, get this, from 3,000 miles out. That's right? incredible. They could, they could do this in 1980 with 1970s technology. Jeez. So can you imagine what they can do now? Oh, it's mind-blowing just to think that. Like, yeah. Their systems, like the computer it. systems they would have had back in those days, like they would have they been would absolutely have been massive. Clunkiest. They would have been the clunkiest. They had to do everything with dot matrix printouts. They had to do, apparently, I read once that some of these sites, there was another one in Thule, Greenland. It's called the Ballistic Missile Early Warning System Base Thule. In, in, it's an American base in Greenland. And apparently in the late 70s, every single thing that went over their head, like every satellite, every missile body, every single, you know, like piece of space debris, it, it became a line, like a line on a computer screen. And, and it was printed out on a dot matrix printer. And these printers just went 24 hours a day nonstop like wow. that and yeah and so even in the 70s they were able to discern the height of an object in space or, or in the upper atmosphere they were able to discern its rough shape its radar reflectivity so now i would expect that they would have data that's much 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 more accurate so instead of were you know instead of the computer system saying oh it's look it's look it's uh, uh, 1116 k's up i'm thinking now it says it's 1116.683246 k's up you know <laughs> to the micro decimal basically or, or, yeah yeah right to the decimals or instead of instead of instead of the the computer saying look it's got a length of you know roughly 17 feet and a and a height of you know four feet it's probably right down to decimal place and it will say if it's tumbling or not or you know like if it's tumbling or if it's um if it's sort of like stationary or maybe if it's fading like if it's if it's actually spinning so one side i have actually heard that that they can even tell now if 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 an object in space is actually tumbling and one side is very very reflective and the other side is like matte black they can even watch that in real time oh. like they can see they can say right we know in 10 seconds it's going to get really reflective again and they they can actually they can actually work out what type of light is coming off it. So is it reflected sunlight or is it reflected moonlight? That's actually sunlight bouncing off the moon. 
and stuff like yeah. that. Like they can get like kind of spectral analysis of what type of light is coming off it, and all this. And then, then to top it off, they've even got systems in other places around the world where if if it is like if it is a man-made object and it's broadcasting, like it's broadcasting, you know, like TV shows or whatever, they can watch all that too. That's in real incredible. Time. So, I'm absolutely so mind blown. Yeah, no, true. So you, if you've got a, a place like I know, there's a place that virtually no one knows about in, in Feltwell in England. That every time a satellite, this is quite true. Every time a satellite goes overhead, if they so wish, and if they have the bad power, and if they could be bothered, they could watch snippets of TV shows constantly. They could listen to classified broadcasts. Like let's say a an American satellite goes over England. Right, that for a split second they could they could pick up all that nice data. It might be a, a U.S. Navy weather weather prediction service satellite, or it could be a, a backup a backup satellite for submarine transmissions up up like like um upload and uh, uplink and downlink submarine transmissions for the Mediterranean fleet of submarines in in around Italy or whatever. And and so so bases on the ground can actually suck in all this eavesdrop like all this sort of eavesdrop radio signalling and scrambled messages as well. I do believe that in Australia, when an Indonesian satellite goes over Pine Gap for a split second, they can actually watch Indonesian Al Jazeera. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Bit weird, isn't it? It's sort of making me think, like, if they can do all this with, like, with just basic satellites, what are they going to be doing using with the Starlink? Well, it's going to be. I don't know. I mean, it's it. We're going. It's it's amazing. I mean, the, the what what we what we what we've got now is just so incredible. I mean, the, the, what we can watch in space with the right resources is is so incredible now that. And it's not just. It used to be that it's just up to like 600 k's into space, but now now they're able. Now our systems on the ground are able to look up to like thirty six thousand k's into space, which is. Which is is the really high flying satellites that do things like weather mapping and 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 that so like telescopes and stuff like that. It, it's it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely incredible. Mm. Like I said, I couldn't stop saying, "Wow, that's how mind blown I am!" But just how much technology we had back in the eighties there. Like I don't think people yeah. realize how much how much we could do back then. Yeah, I honestly I thought we were still it. using DOS and still using you know little basic stuff. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I do know I've got I've got some other I've got I've got some papers. There's a there's a there's a ballistic missile early warning base in England at a place called Filingdales. It's this rugged, wet, muddy place in England. It's it's in Yorkshire and it's an American. It's a, it's one of the biggest radar radar systems in the entire world. It's called Ballistic Missile Early Warning System Filingdales, and it's half run by well, it's paid for by the Americans, and it's and it's functional under the U.S. Air Force, but it's actually run by the British Royal Air Force. Anyway, okay. even back in the 60s, even back in like 1969, the computers were—I I couldn't believe this—the computers were just advanced enough. So, so this, so this radar, this radar base, it constantly looks. Its main job is to look towards the old Eastern Bloc, so Russia, Poland, the Baltic, China, and its job was to look at anything rising up, like rising up in the atmosphere and coming hurtling back down. In other words, missiles. Yeah. It's it's a it's a frontline detection for World War Three intercontinental ballistic missiles. That's what its job is. And it apparently, even in the late 60s, its computers were powerful enough that its radar and the computers behind the radar were able to individually discern and kind of track and predict up to 50 simultaneous objects moving at like 18,000 kilometres an hour. 
That's a fair. So, yeah, so you've got this, you've got this radar system that's just screaming away with it's using one megawatt of power and it's and it's and it's and it's detecting you know say 50, 40 or fifty missiles rising up out of central Russia or central Soviet Union headed headed towards England, Scotland, France or whatever, and it's actually able to automatically track and impact predict the first fifty of them, and wow. and that's with nineteen that's with nineteen sixties computers. That's incredible. Most, of us were, most, most, most mathematicians were still using things like abacuses and, 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 and like old tube-based calculators that were the size of refrigerators. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It is quite, it is quite unreal. It is so quite unreal. How, how much do you think that, like, these things would have picked up UFOs back in those days? Shitloads. Shitloads. We know we've got, some, we've, got some, we've got a few comments from various scientists. I know... There's various scientists over the years who who have been in the defence industry and the aerospace detection industry and who have actually uh, funded and worked with these sort of facilities and they've actually accidentally dropped information in in congressional hearings and in and in classified letters to you know deputy directors at the CIA and everything. I've seen letters that say things like, um, I, well, I I know one particular scientist got up in Congress in 1968. No, sorry, not. Uh, yeah, no, it was 1966, and he said, he said, I can't say too much right now because of classification, but I know of a system that is already picking up anomalous events that aren't missiles or aircrafts. But again, I can't say anything, and and we, we and this is and, and his his statement was that that's that's basically what he said. Now, what we found out, which was in, and this goes back to my sort of work where you have to do research. We researchers found out that only a couple that particular scientist, my, um, his name's actually just lost on me now, which never happens. But anyway, <laughs> um, but hold on, it was it Thornton Page? Yeah, I think it was Thornton Page. Um, uh, it, 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 we found out that only a week before that, he happened to be in a place called Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado. And interestingly, Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado is the backup site of all of America's best uh, missile detection sites. Like okay. it, It's the backup, a, a sort of like redundancy backup uh, alternate site for, for, for radar, for long-range radar and missile detection capability. So, so he said that. We've had other comments too, like, um, oh, who else is there? What else has there been? Um, uh We've had, we've had. Um, I know some people might have heard of the, uh, the 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 American power broker and, and statesman Henry Kissinger. Um, he famously went to China in 1987, um, and he was an Ameri He was the Secretary of State for a long time. Anyway, he he actually wrote a letter to the Deputy Director of Operations for the CIA, and it said something along the lines that that America's ballistic missile early warning system was regularly picking up objects that didn't appear to be glitches in the system but didn't appear to match the profiles of things like planes or missiles and that they were still trying to work out what these like anomalies were so that in a in a, in a rough sense could be ufos too you know like there's all these little things that have been dropped over the years like there's, there's other examples that i've got i've got noted deep in in various booklets and whatever yep. yeah that's amazing. So a lot of efforts gone into this. They're just going to find information that's happened back in the sixties. There, it's hard. It's hard work. It would have been very hard work. Yeah, I do. It 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 can be very boring, and so many dead ends. You know, like you you, you can read you can read entire books and and think that that, that 
you know, but it, it turns out you've either read it all before or, or it's some way completely irrelevant or, um, yeah, so there you go. Yeah, did you ever come across something that like, like sort of overlooked it a little bit there and then gone, hang on a second, what about this back here? Then gone back and go, there's more information to that and sort of dove back into it. Many, many, many times. There's been, there's been times when I've, um, I've had to, uh, I, yeah, there, there, there has... There has there's there's been times where I, I've seen an acronym like like a huge like a huge acronym you know like it might be I don't know um, A F I G C H whatever and and I think oh oh god I'll go and check that later and it turns out you know I, I and then years later I'll see it again and and I'll think hold on I've seen this before and and you'll go and I'll go and, and do some research and I'll find out that it's the old name for like a classified or very highly secure archive within a classified archive at Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama, or something like that. Or you'll see someone's name. What's really weird is when you when you have a case where 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 you where you see we, we see say in 1947 some some security some sort of captain or corporal security guard of an Air Force or an Army base in America. Right, reports a UFO to his commanding officer, you know, whatever. And it's just a few lights in the sky and some of his other, you know, um, um, service people around him saw it as well and, and they write, you know, they write a paragraph and it, and it, and it goes into a dossier and, and it, it's, a, it's an unsolved sighting report. Nothing particularly um, confrontational or intrusive to the base, but it's, it's something to maybe look at. Anyway, all of a sudden, you're reading something 20 years later from the Vietnam War. Yep. And you think, hold on, I've seen this name before. Can't be the same guy, surely, and it's a really strange name. And you'll think, Christ, he's seen another, and you'll see like a huge sighting report from the Vietnam War. That same guy who's now a colonel, so he's gone up through the ranks, you know, major lieutenant colonel, he's now a colonel, and he's, um, he's had the unfortunate um, uh, uh, situation of having to report another UFO 20 years later. I've seen that and had to do a double take and really do my homework on that. That's 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 quite unusual when that happens. Yeah, well, I bet it would have been. Mm. Yeah. So, um, so basically in Australia, um, how did you go about when it comes to the, their sort of uh, defence force or government sort of sightings that have been reported to them? How did, they, how did you go about with those ones? Well, it's... It, well... You've got to go back through history. Um, so basically, um, if you look through history, it's starting in the in the mid fifties. The the agency ultimately responsible for UFOs was the Royal Australian Air Force. I mean, UFO a UFO report, whether it's by a civilian or a cop or a foreign national or a military serviceman, ultimately. It could be reported to an observatory, like an astronomical observatory. It could be reported to a, to an airport, occasionally to police, sometimes to the Bureau of Meteorology, um, sometimes to the Bureau of Air Safety, who handle things like you know incidents on planes and incidents when landing and and, and accidents of you know aircraft or whatever. Um, yeah. Occasionally, even um, UFOs will be reported through embassies. So it might be an Australian Australian. You know, engineer in New Zealand, he reports a UFO, but he, he reports it to uh, Australia, Australia's government through um, our embassy in Auckland or whatever. Yeah. So, so, but ultimately, most reports either simply went into drawers like folders, and that's it, or they ultimately went to the Royal Australian Air Force. Typically, what would happen if you wanted to report, if you were quite serious and wanted to report a UFO, 
people would, you know, you would tend to ring the police or the nearest airport or maybe you'd ring, you know, the nearest uh, Bureau of Meteorology station or, or whatever. But ultimately they would say, look, if you're serious about this, that's fine, but we need you to, we need you to ring your nearest RAF base, Royal Australian Air Force Base. And ultimately the actual organisation within the RAF that was responsible for UFOs, that, that's, that's like collecting reports and then investigating those reports. The ultimately it was, it was it, the organisation was called DAFI, which is Directorate of Air Force Intelligence. And so each each RAF base in Australia, I think with the exception of two of them, the really small ones, but almost all RAF bases in Australia had a DAFI officer or Directorate of Air Force Intelligence officer or officers plural. And Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. They would, if you were serious about your UFO report, they would, they would take your phone call or take your mail and they would, they would send you out a three-page proforma, like a three-page um, essentially a form to fill out and it would have, you know, your name, um, your date of birth, uh, your address, the location where you thought you saw the UFO, the colour of the UFO or UFOs, the number of UFOs, um, you know, any sound associated with them, the angular width, like how big were they, um, whatever, it was three pages. Yeah, wow, so that's, anyway, a, that's a pretty serious document. Yeah, it's called it. a UFO, yeah, it's called a UFO proformer. Or back then it was actually, Australia, we didn't actually use the word UFO after about, we actually rarely used the word UFO, mostly in the, from the 70s onwards, it was actually called an unusual aerial sighting, UAS, unusual yep. aerial sighting. Um, very occasionally it was called um, an unusual aerial phenomena, but mostly uh, UAS. Yep. Anyway, you'd fill it out and, and they would, they would receive it and then they would do an investigation so they would investigate what planes were in the sky at the time what planets were visible on the horizon at the time what sort of weather conditions you would have been experiencing on that day or night um they look into sneaky stuff like you know were you a repeat ufo witness were you the sort of person that was reporting one every every night um yeah. they would they would um they, they, they would look at satellite prediction services like what satellites were going overhead they would they would um uh, right back to you with follow-up questions like about your eyesight or you know just to get an absolute clarification of what direction you're actually looking at or whatever so they'll and, delve and, right into it like so they, they yeah, pretty much yeah, and really get yep, into you to go and get every yep. single bit of detail so that's pretty incredible yeah, that was good in some cases in some cases if it was near enough it was if it was near enough to the base they would actually send someone so they would actually send a RAF officer or RAF officers plural. They would actually send in a staff car. So so if the sighting happened right near a RAF base and it was actually something that could have been a threat to national security, like 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 a like a surveillance drone or or, or maybe maybe a meteorite like like a piece of space debris that might have landed right near a military facility, or if it was something that's um, that was part of some sort of ongoing pattern that, that, that someone higher up had, had said, look, we really need to get on top of this, even if it's just to quell public fear. Um, they would actually send a RAF officer, particularly in the 50s. In the 50s and 60s, they would regularly send 
RAF officers, particularly if there was some sort of physical evidence they needed to pick up, like film negatives, if they needed to look at a supposed landing site, take measurements at a landing site, if they felt that um, if the, if they felt it's something they could solve, like like let's let's say someone kept reporting that every Wednesday night there was a UFO on the mountain. Every yeah. Wednesday night there was a UFO on the mountain. Finally, the RAF have had enough. They say, right, we're going to get on top of this. We're going to go up to this bloody mountain, right? And they and they might go up there and find that, that there's someone who who's, who's who's using floodlights every night at that exact time because they're deer hunting, whatever. So so that sort of thing. But but sometimes, and look, more often than not, um, that the RAF officers did make some attempt. Look, a lot of the a lot of the cases were obviously, you know, they were so they were so loose with, I mean, they, they, they were so poorly reported, you know, that the witness didn't know the date or the time or they couldn't really yeah. decide if the UFO was white or if it was silver or whatever. So a lot of those cases would, would be pushed to the back of the queue. But sometimes they would get some really good cases. Now, to answer your question, what have, what, what have I found more recently? Um, something that is really important, I feel, is that, that so... The Royal Australian Air Force closed up its its UFO um, shop in in 1994. They found that it was costing too much. It wasn't getting anywhere. They were constantly being charged with allegations of covering up. They were they were just not getting any scientific merit out of it. They weren't trying to. They decided, look, this is someone else's problem. Maybe the CSIRO can take it over. Maybe the police can deal with it. Who knows? The airports, but we're not doing it anymore. They yep. said we've been doing it for 40 years. The actual guy who closed the program down was a group captain, Brett Bennington, and he recommended to the chief of air staff that, that the UFO sightings collection program be basically shut down. He did leave one little caveat. If someone honestly thinks that they see something that could be something like a burning aircraft, like an aircraft in distress, or a, say, a piece of, you know, space debris that's landed somewhere and it might be of great technical value to Australian scientists, then they would begrudgingly hear you out if you really wanted to write them a letter. But yep. basically, they were not investigating UFOs anymore. Go somewhere else. Yep. So That's anyway, however, yeah, yeah, that most of them, yeah. So, however, at around about the same time is when Australia's long-range radar systems got really, really good. And Australia's got a number of awesome radar systems. Um, one of it, one of them is what we call Jindalee, the Jindalee Over the Horizon Radar Network. And it's run by a squadron called 1RSU. Um, another radar system or, or a group of radar systems we've, we've got are, are these semi-mobile radar systems that are on the back of trucks. And they're run by a squadron called 3Crew, um, or uh, three, uh, Control and Reporting Unit. Uh, and yet another series of radar stations or radar systems that we've got are the ones that are at all the uh, Air Force bases. So they're run by 44 Wing, or Royal Australian Air Force 44 Wing. They're, they're, they're the big radar towers at Townsville, Catherine, Darwin, Pierce, etc. Yep. Now, those places, so 1RSU, Jindalee, three crew mobile radar units and um, 44 Wing uh, air traffic control services, they all pick up things in Australia's airspace and north of Australia. So they pick up planes, like just normal Qantas planes, you know, Singapore Airlines planes, whatever. They pick up helicopters up there. They see Indonesian aircraft. They see the occasional drug runner from Papua New Guinea or whatever. They see the occasional 
um, a legal flight, like a stolen aircraft or an aircraft that's uh, landing somewhere else than it said it would, they may see the occasional missile. If their radars are really, really lucky, they may even pick up an incoming meteorite. Yep. Now, every now and again, though, and I've got the actual paperwork, I actually got it out of the government under powerful Freedom of Information Act laws, they pick up something called contacts of interest, COI. Okay. And a contact of interest is something that is... Um, is 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 on their screens for long enough that it's not just spurious. Like it's not like a like a like a flock of extremely dense seagulls. It's not like a really bizarre weather pattern. It's you know whatever. It's something that's got to be actually with purpose. It's flying at a you know like a it, it, it's it's flying at a consistent speed. It's got some radar reflectivity. Um, it, it certainly looks like an aircraft, but, but it's got no flight plan. It's got no radio transmission. They ask it to land. They ask it, they, they say, you know, like the battle space controllers will see this blip on their screen and they'll say, right, that's a contact of interest. Wow, what's he doing up there? Geez, he's got no flight plan. He's got no radio transmission. He's not in a mayday situation. We better talk to him. So they'll, they'll, talk, they'll say, right, um, aircraft in sector 204, whatever, can you identify yourself? then nothing happens. And let's say it starts doing loop-de-loops or it goes up in height or down in height or it disappears and reappears somewhere else, then you've got a real serious problem. Yeah. And that is called a contact of interest. And what happens is they record as much data as possible. They record where they first saw it, like where it, literally where it appeared on their screens first, where it disappeared or like, you know, like five minutes later it disappears. They record that. They record like the actual path it took over Australia's airspace. They uh, they look at the the actual strength of the return, like that, like how how big was this object? Was it really highly reflective? Did it have as much as radar return as say say a huge jumbo jet, or is it something quite clearly very small? They look at um, whether it performed any really bizarre movements, whether it was at ridiculously high altitudes, that sort of thing. And the battle space controllers at the Jindalee Centre or wherever, at the air traffic control towers, whatever, they will actually do a drawing. It's called a contact of interest pictogram. They will actually do a drawing. It's a map of where it appeared, what it did in the sky and where it disappeared. And then they will also take a recording of what was on their screens, like an actual digital MP3 recording. Okay. And they will send it up the chain of command. And that's cool. And it gets put into something called the contact of interest database. And that is where I suspect some of Australia's best UFO cases are. I've actually successfully had portions of that database released. And I've got it on my website. Like I've actually got, it, it literally looks like an Excel spreadsheet. It's really weird. It, it, it's, it looks like an Excel spreadsheet with, with days of contacts of interest, of reported, you know, it shows the latitude and longitude where the object first appeared, the site that actually picked it up, like was it Townsville RAF base or was it, you know, like Jindalee system in Alice Springs or whatever. Then it's got, you know, was anyone briefed on the matter urgently, um, you know, the date when it happened, all this. They would only release certain information. Many of the many of the columns of this, these Excel spreadsheet type pages, they've, they've just blacked out under national security exemptions. So that is where you've got our best billion-dollar radar systems have picked up objects that are that are solid enough in the sky, but we have no idea what they are. Yeah, wow. So yeah. how long do you think we've had these radar systems for in Australia? So 
all the rack bases have always had always had long range uh, long range primary radar. So originally, they had like 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 the, the well right back in the 70s, um, all our radar all our all our air force bases had had radars that were um, Italian radars are very good, and now they've got I believe Raytheon radars which are made by like French and British. Um, and we've probably got software that's made by it's interoperable with American systems. Um, we've had them for a very long time now. Jindalee over the Horizon radar network, that's quite new. And when I say new, it came online I think in 1996, but it had very limited coverage. Then it got then it's had upgrade after upgrade after upgrade, and now it can see down on huge parts of like Indonesia and Andaman Sea and East Timor, Cape York, you know, the Gulf of Carpentaria, whatever. Um, so Jindalee's been Jindalee's been around now for probably 28 years, but it's yeah. it's only gotten really good in the last 12 years. Now the three crew radars are the semi-mobile, like they're the ones we cut off to Afghanistan and East Timor and and Iraq and stuff like that. They they've they've been around. Mobile radar systems have been around and gotten better ever. Like the ones in the 80s, the new Doppler digital ones in the 80s were always very good. So they'll only be better and better and better than that. There's another there's another possible. Um, location or another possible data set for what we would call UFOs that I've never tackled because I know I won't get anywhere because it'll be very highly classified. But Australia's Air Force has airborne early warning aircraft like AWACS aircraft and they can look out in every direction with cameras and radar systems and infrared technology. They can look out, you know, for, you know, hundreds of kilometres in a in in a panoramic view, they can look at everything that's up in up in the sky, weather cells, planes, missiles, nothing, and 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 that data, that data, like well, let's say let's say an AWACS aircraft is flying off the coast of Indonesia, and um, you know it picks up a couple of Indonesian fighter jets below it, that's sort of normal, but it also picks, let's say, it picks up something else up in there, and they zoom in on it, and it's something that looks really weird. And, and they get some bearings and azimuth data on it, and they get some close-in photographs. That's the sort of material that, that, that would be housed. That would be actually housed. We know the wing, that the, the, the organisation within the Air Force that runs that, that the AWACS system, it's 42 wing, and they, they're based in, um, they're either based at Edinburgh in South Australia or they're based in Willemtown in New South Wales. Either way, um, that data I know for a fact is classified top secret. Yeah, We're not okay. getting that. There's yeah, no sort way. of hoping that we um, might have had some sort of coverage there from the Westall sort of incident, but unfortunately you're saying that um, yeah that happened in the 60s. Unfortunately you're saying radars happened in the uh, 70s there. So well, which is no, the problem is Westall for starters, Tullamarine Airport wasn't even built. Tullamarine Airport was only a few months away from being finished, I think. Um, Tullamarine Airport, like like Melbourne's biggest radar station, Melbourne yeah, sorry Melbourne's biggest radar system has always originally in the 60s was at Essendon Airport and then a, then a much bigger system um, was implemented at Tullamarine Airport. The problem is with radar, radar doesn't look out across the landscape because then it would pick up every tree and every mountain and every truck and every building. Yeah. The problem in the, the Westall event was at very low altitude or you know, pretty low altitude. It, it, it's not built, radar does not 
that, well, there is one type of radar on ships that will look out sideways because they're looking for submarine periscopes and, 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 and very low-flying helicopters and stuff, but we're not talking about that. Yep. Like, ground, ground-based ground radars in cities look up, and I don't mean literally up only. They they look up, you know, sort of east, west, south, north, but they don't look across the landscape. So yep. for something like, well, I mean, it's so long ago now that, that there's, there's no way that... that I mean, you know, if, if the Westall event happened, had have happened a little bit nearer a major airport and, and in today's day and age when you can store everything digitally, like all digital radar data, yeah, maybe. But, um, yeah, so there you go. Yeah, no, that's incredible. So uh, going on, on, like, the years of research that you've done, like, what do you think would have been the greatest document that you've uncovered that sort of just blew your mind? God. Um... um there's this one document, it's, it sounds very dry, but its implications to me are unbelievable. Um, it's called the Bolander Memo. Um, it's, so back in 1969, the, U, the United States Air Force and the University of, to, to cut a long story short, the US Air Force and the University of Colorado joined forces to basically debunk UFOs. And one of their, and they, they did a pretty good job of it. Like, well, they certainly did a good, well, scientifically, they did a very poor job of it. Real scientists laugh at the, con, it's called the Condom Report, came out in 1969. Um, it, it, in scientific circles, it's laughable. It, it's really poorly done. It's even poorly written. But for the public and the media, it was, it was, it was a whitewash. Like, it was a fairly successful um, um, thousand-page report is literally a thousand pages. In, in one version of it is a thousand, oh, a, a thousand. Yeah, it's a thousand eleven pages in one version. Um, depending on how they index it and, and the front covers and stuff, it's massive. And they basically, the Condon report, the Condon and his 16 scientists and Colonel Hippler at the, um, at the US Air Force headquarters in Washington, D.C., basically debunked UFOs. They basically said, they, they made a bunch of key findings. They said, number one, UFOs, whatever they are and whatever they're probably not, they do not affect national security, right? And number two, we don't, we don't like as as an air force and in fact as the whole military that includes the navy and the army as well. We don't want to spend any more time focusing on UFO reports. We don't want to investigate UFO reports. We don't want to store them. We even if they come from within the military. We, we, they, they are very, very vague about it, but they effectively say there is no place for UFO, for, for properly, I mean, not, not stray aircraft and stuff, that's different, but for, for real UFO reports, there is no place within the US military, particularly the US Air Force, there is no place in the US Air Force or the, or the wider US Department of Defense for UFO reporting or investigation. That's number one. And number two, UFOs do not affect national security. Right. So that, that was the public findings. That's what the Secretary of the Air Force, Dr. Robert Siemens, and Condon and his, his merry team told the world. However, at the same time, so, that, so that's the unclassified version of reality. Now I'll tell you what the classified version of reality said. At the same time as this disgrace was being penned to the American people, there was a secret study done um, by a chap who was a brigadier general, that's a one-star general, that's quite highly ranked, right? His name was Carol H. Bolander, or Carrot Herbert Bolander, and he was the deputy director for development 
within the Deputy Chief of Staff for Research and Development Office of the United States Air Force, headquartered at the Pentagon. And he he wrote this three-page memo that was classified secret. I think it was classified secret. It didn't come out until ten years later. It was. It came out under under by, by well, it came under. Uh, well, it would never have come out if it wasn't for the work of a chap called Robert Todd, who was an FOI researcher. He does what I do. He writes. He harasses government agencies for documents. He basically, yeah, in 1978-79 thereabouts, he wrote to the Air Force and said, "I want all documents at your end of the." of the job that, that helped close down America's UFO reporting system, basically. And he and he gets this three page memo back. And it's it's called it's called the Bolander Memo. The actual real word would be the Bolander Air Staff Study of UFOs. Anyway, on page two, right there in black and white, not once but twice, it actually says, in future, UFO reports that affect national security will be handled in accordance with something called JNAP-146 and Air Force Manual 5511. So that's saying something absolutely extraordinary. It's saying, so on the one hand, we've had the Air Force public relations people and the information people and the Condon Commission, we've had them telling the world UFOs are not a threat to national security at all. And there should be no one in the military that is bothered with them at all anymore. There will be no more reporting of UFOs. There will be no more standardised reporting of UFOs, blah, blah, blah. And yet, in the same year, Carol H. Bolander, the Brigadier General, is writing a memo to the rest of the Air Force saying that behind closed doors, any, and I quote, UFOs that affect national security will be handled in accordance with JNAP-146 and Air Force Manual 5511. Now, JNAP-146 is a particular booklet that tells people how to report UFOs, and Air Force Manual 5511 is another booklet that tells uh, military people how to report anything highly unusual or, or troubling to the military. Yeah, well, so, so they just tell it, contradicting themselves. It is absolutely unbelievable. It is literally a 180-degree turn. It's like the public... <laughs> It is, it is so obvious the public were told by Condon and Dr. Robert Siemens, the Secretary of the Air Force, and the information people, and and, and, and was told, like, so scientists so scientists who were on the Air Force books and the Air Force itself were telling Congress and the, the, the American public that, that UFOs, one, are no national security threat, and two, we're not interested anymore. And then, but behind closed doors, they're completely 180 degree different, totally different. It specifically says UFOs in future that affect national security will be handled like this by us. It's yeah. all, and it was all, and it all went underground. It all went underground. They called it the back channel. There was these two back channels, JNAP-146 and Air Force Manual 5511. They, they were the two new back. Well, actually, weren't that new. Those, those actual booklets have been in place for years, but the point is, is now Brigadier Belinda was was actually highlighting to, to, the, to the wider military. From now on, you report UFOs like this. We do it classified. We don't tell the people. If it affects national security, report it like this, and, and, we're, and we're going to do it our way from now on. There will be no public involvement. There will be no involvement from Congress. Senators will not be answering any or asking any more questions. We are not taking questions from the public. We are not making findings public. We are not advertising that we're still in the UFO game. We're not taking all the civilians, blah, 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 blah. It was... The, it is the biggest. If people say to me, you know, when people say to me, oh, you know, like, like, give me, give me an example of some real cover up. That's that's one example I could give you. That's yeah. really quite troubling. Yeah. 
Wow. I mean, you can't get any more. When, when you've got a situation where one hand is telling the world this and the other yeah. hand, for eyes only, behind closed doors, is telling you something that's literally the exact opposite, right? Who are you going to believe? Yeah, that's right? right. Like, it's quite obvious that there's a problem. Like, the, yeah, so that that's quite an impressive document. Yeah. yeah, I'll send you the Belinda memo. It's quite, it's 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 top heavy. It's it's not easy to read. Um, and 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 but when Robert Todd saw it, when he got it, when he actually had the Air Force actually release it, he was speechless. He was furious. Yeah. Um, because because I mean because we we've been told. I mean people were really believing all this stuff. But as the years went on in the seventies, we, we researchers like people like me, but just the generation before me, started realizing that. Um, that, that, that so much of what we've been told was just simply for, for just general consumption. It wasn't actually based on much truth. Yeah. Shocking. Wow. So just um, think, talking about um, researchers in the past and present and whatever, um, so like if you think people wanted to become a researcher or like where or how do you think you recommend for them to go and start their road to hopeful success? Easy. Okay, get off YouTube for starters. Um read unfortunately it sounds very dry and boring but read read books and and look i could give anyone the list of i've got like a, a list of my 10 best books my 20 best books these are books that one have stood the test of time two haven't been easily superseded in their information three have not been involved in scandals like the author hasn't been involved with scandals of plagiarism and whatever else like books that have really stood up and sometimes you have to read skeptical material too in fact some of in my list of best 20 books there's two in there that are by skeptics phil uh, one's by phil class and the other one's by donald menzel who are ufo skeptics um and they and they do have some extremely sobering pointed arguments and, and they they were able to trash some excellent ufo cases um and and they that you know they, they were they were scientists um that particularly donald menzel um, and yeah, so so I would say read. I mean, the, I've got a list of say top twenty books or top fifty books that that should be what we call required reading for ufologists, for U, UFO researchers. They need to be required reading. Yeah. And people should learn about what is actually in the sky. I mean, everyone says, ah, planes, helicopters. What else is there? Well, there actually yeah. is a lot. I mean, there's lenticular clouds that look like UFOs. There is. Um, you know, now obviously we've got drones. There's still to this day, still to this day, some weather and, and meteorology bodies in some countries still release weather balloons, right? There is there is a, a, a number of objects that, that in the sky that look pretty weird. Um, uh, aerial refueling aircraft in layers of pollution look really bizarre. Um, some combinations of, of, of stars just coming up on the horizon, you need to know a bit about yep. astronomy. Um, you can't, yeah. The, the list the, goes on. Not, yeah. Basically, it's just the rule of thumb of uh, ruling out all logical explanations and then hopefully coming down to something yeah, it, that, it, that you can't think of. I, yeah, it's called IFO filtering. So identified flying object filtering. Once you filter out all the junk, like you filter out, obviously, if you can, you've got to filter out hoaxes and hallucinations. Yeah. Um, then you start filtering out aircraft and astronomical bodies. If it's a daylight sighting, like in broad daylight, well, obviously, that's easy. You can filter out stars and planets. Yeah. Um, if it's a, a sighting in the middle of the night, you've, 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 you know, like if it's, well, there's, 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 
heaps of things you can do. One of the first things I do for nighttime sightings is I look, and unless the object is clearly really close to someone, one of the first things I do is look to see what satellites were passing overhead. Yep. And, and if they say, we definitely saw a UFO going from north to south at exactly 8.53, I'll go, hold on. The Iridium Satellite 3 model for Europe goes right over at that moment, you know, like, and, and you'll be able to do a lot of work. You, you know, you can get on these flight prediction services or flight reference services to look to see what planes were in the sky at any one time, and you can go back for a month worth of data. Like, I could see, you know, planes that were in the sky, say, at the end of May, even now, over any particular given area. Yeah. Um, even police choppers and everything. So there is a lot you can do. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and unfortunately, a lot of people just want to go and jump to the, nah, it's got to be a UFO craft, because like, you know, because unidentified, but it's like, well, hang on, do the homework first, try and rule it out, instead of just going, calling the alien card. Yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's really frustrating, it's, 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 it's very frustrating. Um, we've had cases where, where it, it's often a combination of things, so something like the moon rising on the horizon, but yep. through a layer of clouds, or a plane or a plane deciding to fly very, very low, but in a really horrendous layer of pollution, like over an industrial area, like over over a whole city, you can see it. Yeah. Um, or something, something like, um, like it, it yeah, it, it, it just it, it might be a combination of, of of meteorological things and actual objects in the sky. Like like I know, police helicopters have have caused sightings that that, that look provocative, at face value. Yep. You know, because helicopters, even though they're loud, when they're far away and the wind's blowing completely, like, away from, like, like away from you towards them, so sound waves much harder to get back to you. Some police helicopter activity at night with their floodlights, yep. particularly when they're quite low, um, and if you can't hear them, all of a sudden it takes on a completely different meaning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think, like, especially there in um, Victoria, or Melbourne area in general, like people will say that's like the hot spot for UFOs, but like you can, if you're in a high spot, you can see nearly over the entire city range of no, Melbourne, but, and people are yeah. seeing objects in the distance. They're going, "Oh, it's going to be a UFO," and it's like, "Well, it could be as simple as a police helicopter, or like you're saying, or a plane a in the late, distance, late, or something, you know, something explainable." Yeah, a late landing plane. I mean, people say, "Oh, but Tullamarine aircraft stops accepting accepting planes at a certain time." Well, no, it doesn't. It, it, it accepts cargo flights after a certain time, and it does accept. Passenger flights after a certain time, it's just that they get fined for it. So, yeah, um, the, yeah there's there's heaps of yeah. The, the, it's 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 quite complicated. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's unfortunate how people make these mistakes, but it's I suppose like we have to get aware of things that are in the sky. Now, technology is a big thing now. We, it's not like the eighties or nineties where drones weren't a thing then, you know, and. A lot of mistaken identities, really. That's what yeah. I've found yeah, there's, there's um, heaps with this page heaps going through. Um, you know, everyone's got a camera now, and they're mis uh, misidentifying a lens flare and stuff like that. It's like people yeah, lens flares are a big one. Uh, yeah. people think because cameras are getting better. Know how it works is cameras are getting better with color, and they're getting better with short range stuff. Go outside. I, I challenge people to go outside, look up at, a, at an aircraft going from like Auckland to Perth. Right, so it's at thirty-one thousand feet. Yeah. Right, zoom in on it all you want. Get the best phone camera you can. Zoom in on it all you want. You will not be able to discern. It will be so hard to discern individual features on that. It will still look like, like, because it's moving fast and you're moving as well. Like your yep. hands are moving and it's moving and it's windy and, you know, the sunlight reflecting in a certain way that you 
might not be quite aware of, and and, and then there's the software makes makes uh, like they have these adjustments software and adjustments like that, yep. that, that building they building colours that aren't actually there and stuff like this, and 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 I actually read one paper I haven't I haven't really absorbed it because it's very technical, but it's actually saying it's by a really renowned UFO researcher and he's and he's basically really dismayed at, at basically using mathematics he proves that phone cameras have an Enormous long way. We're like we're talking twenty years before yep. they get that good. Um, he said that he's basically writing. They are literally just never and not good enough. Like film cameras, in some way, because film cameras, like the actual image, is actually in literally ingrained somewhere that you can just go deeper and deeper with, uh, with with microscope, uh, with, like with a magnifying glass and whatever. With 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 digital cameras, you're effect you're effectively getting like an electronic artifact. Like you're actually not getting a truly accurate image of whatever. You're actually get some getting something that's passed through layers and layers of software. That's and right. Pixelation and stuff like that comes into effect. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and yeah. So I mean, our cameras do amazing things. Like they put, you know, well, the software can put. That's ridiculous. Put pandas on people's faces, and like yeah. you can spin it around and. and grayscale and stuff like that, but as far as taking a photo of something that's 26 kilometres away in a thunderstorm, it ain't, it ain't very good. No, it's, yeah, you're pretty much shooting at a brick wall and not being able to get through it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, a question for you. Um, Alright, so we're basically going to go um, towards the, well, I've also got a bit of a disclosure, if you want to call it that. I don't really think it's much of a disclosure, but, you know, a bit of a cryptic disclosure, if anything. So, um... Do you think we'll get any information or footage like we've recently had released from America from Australians' perspective? No, uh, I think it'd be pretty unlikely. The 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 if you're talking about footage taken from say uh, like Australia's got F A eighteen Hornets and and and, and or sorry F eighteen Hornets and F A eighteen Super Hornets, and we've got those AWACS aircraft and various um, transport planes and so on. I'm would actually be curious to know, and, I, and I've asked around occasionally, I would like, I, I just don't know what cameras, per, not maybe personal cameras, but what sort of actual photographic equipment pilots and navigators and weapons officers are actually taking up there with them. Yeah. That's number one. So obviously to get pictures or, or moving images, you've got to take equipment up with you. Now, as far as military equipment, so that means forward-looking infrared cameras, um, electro-optical systems that, that that they look for things like heat plumes, uh, um, or, or they look they look for say um, they they look for sort of like uh, uh, they hone in on on weapons systems and then take automatic pictures whether the pilot even knows about it and stuff like that. Do we have have we taken really extraordinary pictures? Look, I don't even see. I've, I have not, it's been a long time since I've even seen pictures of where an Australian pilot or an Australian seaman at, 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 in the ocean or a captain or a navigator or whatever has taken, say, intelligence or security photographs or moving images of, say, an Indonesian fighter jet or an Indonesian... I mean, the closest thing I know is when our Navy takes photographs of people smuggling boats or, or, or drift, like, like empty boats that are just drifting in the sea for just for you know backup intelligence you know where yep. where's it from have they all drowned whatever that's the closest thing i can think of to where certainly in our northern approaches in northern territory wa queensland where, where anyone's taking photographs out essentially on what could be the battlefield or out in forward operational areas are our pilots taking photographs of stuff in the sky regularly are they allowed um 
do they do they even know that they're doing it? Like I said, some systems apparently take photographs automatically in the pilots that don't even realise. Yeah. And they're, they're instantaneously uplinked to satellites and sent straight back down to, to, to a fusion headquarters in Glenbrook or, or maybe Alice Springs or whatever. Um, are we going to get anything? I would doubt it. I would very much doubt it. I, I think it would be a fluke. I think it would be like a one-off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so just a quick question um, in regards to that. So, like, if, say someone did want to try and track down something, information from the military, like, who is our military sort of personnel to try and ask in that regard? Like, you know how the, uh, America's the, got the FBI well, and the CIA or whatever and whatnot. Who's okay, the Australian so side of things? Royal Australian Air Force, but particularly the organisations that, or the organisations or actual office people, officers, are uh, the uh, the director of the Directorate of Coordination for the Royal Australian Air Force, that's one. Another one would be the Defence Flight Safety Bureau, or has it changed its name? It used to be called the Directorate of Defence Aviation and Air Force Safety, but now it's just recently changed its name to, I think it's called the Directorate of Flight Services, or the Directorate of Flight Safety Bureau, or something, it's just very recent. I'm gonna have to check that out, but that's another one. Um, another one would be um, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau's, which is not military, but the, it's civilian, but the Australian Transport Safety Bureau's accident and incident notification people in Canberra. And another one would be the uh, Air Services Australia um, electronically submitted event report uh, analysts. Uh, another one would be anyone operating the radar systems on the Anzac class frigates that are run by the Royal Australian Navy's Naval Command. That would, that would be another one. Oh, I might have to go soon. Um, yep. Yeah, so that, that they would be the organiser. Oh, and then another one for, like, if you're talking about actual sightings, like video footage and actual descriptive sightings, this won't work, but 41 wing, like I was saying before, 41 wing run, um, one RSU radar system Jindalee, and they run the three crews, the three reporting and control, uh, control and reporting units, sorry. And yep. they, they log... Um, atmospheric and aerospace detections of what I was saying before about contacts of interest. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, before we let you go, mate, I've got another question here. Like, oh, not a question, but um, well, actually, it is a question. Actually, <laughs> if people want to find the research that you've done in the past, there, where could they find it? I believe you have a website. Yeah. So um, it's called. I think if you just type in, um, oh, I suppose it's four words: UFOs, space, documenting, space, the space evidence. So UFOs documenting the evidence, and I suppose you could put Paul Dean next to it. Um, that would be because I've got it's a blog site. It's called UFOs documenting the evidence. I don't know the exact URL. I'm not good with that stuff. <laughs> but um, oh, I'm crap. But it's that would be um, that that is where that is where the vast bulk of my work is. Yep. Cool. So any any, um, any particular researchers or anything like that you worked with that you want to give a bit of a shout out or a bit of a small rundown yep, at least. Um, uh, Keith Basterfield is the person in Australia I work most with, and he's very, very good, very level-headed, very sensible. His work is 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 very, very reliable. If you want an accurate picture of what's gone on in Australian ufology since day dot, his his work is very good. Another one who's very, very good with Australian UFO history is Bill Chalker. He's in Sydney. Um, overseas, I work heavily with Barry Greenwood. He, Barry is in um, Boston, in Massachusetts, and he actually has the largest personal collection of UFO material in the world. Oh, wow. So government documents, um, magazines, books. Um, he has three rooms completely full to the ceilings. I mean, folder, 
there are thousands and thousands and thousands of case files, like actual UFO files, like 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 actual case reports. You know, some, some I mean, he's got eighteen folders just on Roswell alone, um, and you know, he has. When I talk on Skype with him, he pans the camera around, and and the amount of material just in that room alone is so unbelievable. It's literally packed to the ceiling, absolutely packed to the ceiling. He said it's even up and down the hallway now. Oh no. Um, yeah, 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 it's bad. <laughs> and he's scanning it. And he, I think he estimated, this is a few years ago, he estimated to, that scanning for eight hours a day, he'll be scanning for 22 years. Oh. Yep, that's how much he's got. And then he's got nah. a mate called Dan Aldrich, who's nearly as bad. There is a lot of material out there. That's what I was yeah, saying before. You've got no incredible. idea. And you've got no idea. Yeah, oh, no, I don't think anyone really does. Really, even the biggest researchers in the world, they probably have no idea either. Just, it's an endless yeah. can of worms. Yeah, so anyway, that's... No, mate, that's absolutely awesome, mate. Um, thank you very much for joining us, mate. That's incredible. That's right. And um, I, I hope um, people get a better understanding of how much effort's put in behind researching UFOs and that It is, that it is worth doing. It is, even if you just pick one area or one country or one case, it's absolutely worth doing. Yeah, especially when you get a big um, breakthrough anyway. Yeah, it is good. It's very All rewarding. Right, people, thank you very much for having me. No, mate, thank you very much for joining us, mate. It's been an absolutely incredible interview having you uh, and I um, hope to talk to you soon. That's all right. Yeah, we'll do it again. Definitely, mate. All Look right. forward to it, mate. All the best. See ya. Bye. See you, mate.